Welcome, listeners, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We have a very special author with us tonight, a very special book, a book that I've read, and it's one of those books where you feel like you're there with the men who are going through it. An elite platoon of Marine Scout snipers, Lieutenant Frank Tchaikovsky's 40 Thieves, were chosen for their willingness to defy rules and beat all comers. When two Marines got into a fight, the loser ended up in the infirmary, the winner in the brig. Tchaikovsky wanted the winner on his team. A brush with military law was a recommendation. These full-blooded men were trained in a ruthless array of hand-to-hand killing techniques and then thrown into the battle for Saipan, Emperor Hirohito's treasure, and the bulwark of the Japanese Empire in the Pacific, where they would wreak havoc in and around, but mostly behind, enemy lines. They witnessed inhuman atrocities, walked into an ambush after the cunning Japanese used wounded marines as bait, endured body-punishing extremes of heat, hunger, and thirst, fought a relentless enemy who would not surrender, and watched their best friends die. Now Tchaikovsky's son Joseph tells their remarkable story, a story he didn't even know until after his father's death, reported from an extensive documentary record including priceless mementos his father kept, and from exhaustive interviews with survivors who served under Lieutenant Ski. This is how America won the war in the Pacific, where uncommon valor was a common virtue. Forty Thieves on Saipan, the elite Marine Scout snipers in one of World War II's bloodiest battles, is true history. It's also an adventure you don't want to miss. And we're lucky enough to have with us today the author and son of Ski, Joseph Tchaikovsky. Joseph, it's great to have you with us today. Well, thank you, John, for having me on 1001 Heroes. Tell us about 40 Thieves on Saipan. Who were the 40 Thieves, and how did you discover their story? 40 Thieves uh, on Saipan were the 6th Marine Regiment's Scout Sniper Platoon. At the onset of World War II in the Pacific, uh, it was decided that the Marine Corps needed a, a new breed of jungle fighter, is how they've been described, these scout sniper platoons, uh, modeled after British commandos who could work and live behind enemy lines for days at a time, where firing a weapon would be your last option. So they were trained in ways, as uh, Bill Knuppel, the platoon sergeant, said, in ways you can't even fathom. Your father, Lieutenant Tchaikovsky, was the commanding officer of the 40 Thieves. How did they earn their nickname? (laughs) Marines of World War II in general were very prolific thieves. They needed to be to better their odds against the Japanese. They were the most poorly equipped branch of service at the time. When they went into Guadalcanal, they were issued the same rifles, uniforms, uh, and rations that were used in World War I. So marine methods, as they referred to it as, that we better know it as stealing, uh, is something that uh, most Marines were good at, but this specific platoon excelled at the craft. Leon Uris, who was in the 6th Marine Regiment and wrote a book called Battle Cry. Uh, he was an H Company, along with Bill Knuppel, the platoon sergeant, whom I knew and interviewed many times. And I asked Bill, "Is you know, there's 
Eurus writes about this band of thieves in the 6th Regiment. And I said, Is that, does that have anything to do with you? And he said, somewhat. Um, and in the book, they recount a, uh, a story about how these group of thieves stole an army colonel's jeep. So I asked one of my little old leathernecks in Georgia, Bob Smots, did you guys ever steal an army colonel's jeep? And he said, no. And I just got deflated. He said, it was an army captain's jeep. And we beat the hell out of that thing. (laughs) Your description of that uh, during their training in Hawaii, I believe it was, uh, was, was fantastic. Share a little bit about what their training was like uh, and how these guys were picked. Well, when um, the first thing that my dad did, when, according to Bill Knuppel, um, was seek out Bill Knuppel because he needed a platoon sergeant. And uh, Knuppel came on board and they posted uh, a notice wanting volunteers for the scout sniper platoon because they wanted to choose the men. It was one of the rare opportunities that any lieutenant would have to choose his own platoon members. It doesn't happen. You just get your hand and your that's your dealt and that's what you had to play with. In fact, going into Tarawa, they uh, thought it was going to be so bloody that they emptied all of the brigs for Tarawa. And uh, Dad thought he got every last one of them. But it must have impressed him somewhat, because when he and Knuppel were going through the record books, he mentioned to Bill that he was specifically looking men with brig time, that have served brig time. Uh, In the Marine Corps, you weren't considered a good Marine until you've spent at least one tour in the brig. Uh, They referred to brig time as office hours, just doing their job. (laughs) So... um, he wanted the men in the break, as you said, because the uh, the uh, loser goes to the infirmary and the winner goes to the brig. And the guy in the brig was the kind of guy he wanted. These guys, as you described in your book, and by the way, you, your, your characters in this book, obviously, these are all real people. The fact that you were able to develop these characters so much, even down to the conversations, really shows how deep the research went on this book and how well you were able to contact and talk to these guys and go through the letters and go through the histories. Uh, it had to have been exhaustive for you. Did you hit any difficulties along the way? Not so much difficulties uh, other than I was interviewing 90-year-old men yep. who can remember what they can remember. But they really tried very hard to remember. Marvin Strombo in Montana had a great uh, recollection of faces. I could put photographs in front of him and he'd tell the guy's name and little bits about them. They all had great stories to tell. And uh, the only, I wouldn't say difficulty, it was more of a pleasure, would be driving all around the country multiple times because one of them might remember something and I'd share that with the other two. They would come up with their input and the story started to become like a jigsaw puzzle where Smots would give the beginning, Mullins would give the middle, and Strombo would you know, give the end. But at the time it was just this mass of stories and recollections and letters and a lot of the gentlemen would remember in conversation 
specifically Knuppel. Many of uh, when dad's recruiting him, that's, you know, your dad said, I said, you know, Don Evans said, I said, you know, that's so a lot of the dialogue came directly from the men and what wasn't from them was garnered out of letters and diaries. Strategically to the Japanese, why was Saipan important? Why did they expend so much to try and save it? Well, Saipan was the first link in the chain of Japanese home islands. This would be like invading Honshu, the main, the main island, um, which is why Hirohito referred to it as his treasure, or at least General Saito did in, in some of the things that he documents that I've read. If that fell, the Japanese ties to their installations west would be severed. Uh, beyond that strategic um, importance, the Marianas held two of the most prized possessions in the Pacific in the best airfields. Uh, Saipan had Eslido Airfield, but Tinian held the Ushi Airdrome, which was the finest airfield in the Pacific with runways large enough to accommodate the superfortresses, which put Tokyo in in range. I'm going to ask you a question that's slightly off the subject, but I'm a little curious about it. I did read the book from cover to cover, and by the way, it was a page-turner. I think I read it in two nights. Uh, absolutely excellent story that really holds you all the way through, right to the end. Why I say this question is off the record is, we've done a lot of research and stories on Amelia Earhart, who mm -hmm. is, I believe, and many people believe, was held captive for a period of time on Saipan in Garapan prison. In your conversations with these guys, was anything mentioned about Amelia Earhart? No. Okay, just curious. No, I never that. even, if I would have known, I would have, would have asked them. But the Japanese certainly would have gotten rid of the evidence, mm -hmm. like they did on Wake Island when they thought that was going to fill and they executed something like almost 100 prisoners so they yeah, wouldn't right. talk about whatever abuse they may have suffered. So there would have been no evidence. There was. It. There was a testimony from a Marine who blew open a safe uh, in Garapan. Uh, they were hoping to find riches. There, I think there were three Marines. They blew the safe, and each of them grabbed one-third of the contents of this safe. And uh -huh. the one guy grabbed uh, a briefcase or a valise, and when he opened it up, it was all full of Amelia Earhart personal uh, belongings, uh, the collection of stamps that she had been sent to, uh, to fly with, the whole deal. And he wow. testified at length about, about the contents of that valise, which he handed to an intelligence officer and never saw again. Right. Uh, and he was a Marine. So in your subsequent conversations with these guys, if you bring it up, ask them if they'd ever heard of uh, any of the Marines who uh, came in contact with any evidence or even rumor about Amelia Earhart. Sure, I'll be, be seeing Marvin uh, in a you know from a distance obviously in uh, in a few in a few weeks so I'll I'll make sure to ask him. How did your dad earn his silver star? He was uh, awarded the silver star for actions on Tarawa. And uh, I only know about the details of this because of a speech that he must have written to some 
VFW or Legionnaire organization where there was an enemy pillbox that was huge, as he put it in his memory, maybe two stories high. And it had all of a Marine company, as this was as they were advancing on the last day. It had an entire company of Marines pinned down in half of his own platoon. And he was going to take some of his men to the top to see what they could do about it. And as they started climbing toward the top, there was a hatch in the top of the pillbox. And the Japanese started throwing grenades at them, as dad said, as big as grapefruit. Now, by doing research, the only thing that that could have been sort of could have been some anti-tank mine that in his memory, or maybe they just looked bigger in his mind eye, but they weren't the little serrated pineapple grenades that we associate with the Japanese. So they kept throwing these grenades at him and his men ran back down the hill, but he was so intent on climbing that he didn't notice the grenades. And when he got to the top, he was up there and he was all by himself. So while he was up there, the uh, Japanese head popped out of the trap door and he was able to like kick him back in, throw some grenades down there and destroy the pillbox. And that's what they gave him the silver star for, which he never thought he would necessarily did anything that was worth, you know, uh, worthy of a medal of honor. It was, uh, I think modesty was their big, their big, uh, one of their virtues. A lot of these guys, the World War II veterans, didn't talk about their experiences. And apparently that was your case growing up as a kid. Did your dad ever share that stuff with you? What did he tell you about World War II? He would say nothing. Um, he'd talk about the USS Maryland days when he was there before the war with his buddies named Snurd and Goofy and Shitsack. Um, that's the, another thing I noticed. All Marines had a nickname or a last name. They never had first names for dad um, or any of them uh, for that matter. Um, but he, you know, if my mother happened to mention something about Guadalcanal or Tarawa, he would get very angry and, and to the point of where it just killed the conversation when he'd regain his composure, he'd explain where mother's statement might have been wrong but you knew that put a wet blanket on it and you don't talk about it anymore and it became much more understandable in talking to bob smots in georgia one of the guys from the platoon he said nobody ever talked much about the war because killing is nothing to brag about and they did their fair share of killing in a very barbaric way in the pacific because the japanese were just so cunning and tenacious and would never surrender. I think I think you had written that it was also Smots who said the guys who talked about it, uh, killing a lot very likely weren't involved in it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he said, I think he actually said, I'll tell you, he, he had to make things a little less colorful for the book, because, but hearing these guys, it's, it's their words, and that's why I wanted to be faithful to their words in the book, because how they tell a story is so much more impactful than what, you know, a schmo like me could make up. But he said, I'll tell you one thing that you can take to the bank. Those that talk the most about the things they've done did the least. A lot of these guys are thinking that by the time they reached Saipan, that three was the unlucky number for them because they'd already been right. through two major island sweeps, uh, which were bloody and dangerous, and Saipan was expected to be the worst. Explain what happened from D-Day on the Saipan beaches 
until the time they were able to get to their uh, destinations north. How difficult was that fighting and what did it involve? It, it was very difficult, very bloody, very hand-to-hand. Um, most of them expected to die. That was just part of the bargain. Um, they had uh, working the way they were going to be working behind enemy lines, deep in enemy territory. No one was going to get them out. The credo of no man left behind didn't apply to the thieves. They were told in no uncertain terms that if a man were injured where he couldn't make it back on his own, he was to be left because getting him back might endanger the mission, the, the things that they were doing of, of great import for the advance of the line's troops. And uh, they made a pact. They voted on it, that if a wounded guy couldn't make it back on his own, they wouldn't leave him alive. Yeah, that's a hard reality, isn't it? Yeah. I, that's, um, I think Roscoe Mullen said that the only way he thought he was going to get out of that hell was in a, in a body bag. Uh, it was three weeks or more of combat with little or no sleep because the Japanese always attacked at night and the Marines always advanced during the day. Um, the rations that they had were scant. Men went from, I think Smots said that he was 180 pounds at the beginning of the battle and by the end he was down to 130 pounds. Uh, and you can see that in some of the photos of these guys when they're on New Zealand or Hawaii and they're being, you know, well fed. And then you see them a week or two into battle and their uniforms are just hanging off them because they're basically just skin and bone. And, uh, you know, obvious. And besides the physical enemy of the Japanese, they had to deal with dysentery which was hideous. People don't realize how hideous it, it is. Um, you can die of dehydration. Um, recurrences of malaria contracted on Guadalcanal. And uh, then they had dengue fever to look forward to as well, which they is also known as breakbone fever because they, uh, it feels like all the bones in your body have been broken. The Japanese had a code of Bushido. Was that the code of honor that basically would not allow them to surrender? To my understanding, yes. And consequently, anyone who would surrender was deemed terribly dishonorable. Surrender was not in their code, which is why they treated anyone who would surrender um, with such little regard and probably why they didn't sign or acknowledge the Geneva Protocol, um, which was the Geneva Convention of, of the day. Now, Saipan had a large civilian population, did it not? And was it half Japanese and half Chamorro? Was that how it worked? There were Chamorro and Japanese. I'm not sure of the proportion of it. But the Chamorros were the natives of the land, and that's when the... Uh, uh, early Spanish mariners found the Chamorros to be so adept at thievery um, when they, you know, Magellan was there, the Chamorros would swim out to the boats and just steal from them. Um, that the Spanish mariners called the Marianas the islands of thieves. <laughs> las, las Islas de los Ladrones, I believe. The biggest objective they, the Marines had 
was Garapan, was it not? Is that about halfway up the island? I would say it's about halfway way up the island, and that was one of the objectives. It was the capital city, but it was, uh, you know, a mountainous, rocky, difficult terrain with Tipopali and Tapachu, uh, the two twin peaks that had been heavily fortified. And um, as opposed to Marines that would advance, what the Japanese would do would be to take a specific site and fortify it and make it incredibly costly to you know get them out to eradicate them like mount suribachi on iwo jima correct yeah Yeah. and in fact i think on iwo jima they took a different strategy whereas the the bonsai that they they did launch i believe a couple a bonsai on tinian that took a battalion commander of the sixth marine regiment i forget his name offhand because that's you know was cut out of the book but they they didn't uh have bonsais anymore. They fought Iwo Jima in a little bit different of a fashion, and Okinawa too, that made those battles much longer and you know more bloody. Um, that you know rushing in to have all of your troops killed on one night wasn't a good strategy anymore because the Marines could repel those types of uh, charges. There were a lot of sad episodes in World War II, but one of the saddest was what happened with hundreds of civilians, mothers carrying children on the North Cliff, the cliffs of Saipan. Could you describe what happened? On Marpy Point, all my old guys can talk about their friends being killed, seeing other Marines killed, and they don't shed a tear. But when they talk about Marpy Point and watching mothers throwing their babies off the cliffs and then following them, they break down. The civilians had been convinced by the Japanese that the Marines would kill kill them. Is that correct? And and things like, uh, basically, as Bill Knuppel said, that we would commit atrocities on their civilian population like they did in, uh, was it Nanking? Yes. Yeah. 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 The rape of Nanking. Killing babies and, you know, whatever horrible thing and they were brainwashed to to believe it so the uh, constant pleas of you know uh, water and food and medical attention uh, went you know through the wind and also there were Japanese soldiers there making sure that anyone who might try to surrender could not walk away right and it just got to be this frenetic, undulation of humanity over the side of the cliff and as roscoe said if you would have if you would have blinked your eye you would have missed it we'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting go to your happy place for a happy price go to your happy price price line support for this podcast and the following message come from corient 
Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And now, back to our show. Tell us a little bit about the Eleanor Roosevelt quote that begins the book. Well, I think it's runs, I almost remember it by rote, but it to, might be paraphrasing a little bit, but it's the Marines I've met around the world have the cleanest bodies, the filthiest minds, the highest morale, and the lowest morals of any group of animals I've ever seen. Thank God for the United States Marines. And, and the quote stems from an episode on New Zealand um, when the 6th Regiment was stationed there between Guadalcanal and Tarawa. In fact, my dad was in the infirmary with malaria when Eleanor Roosevelt walked into his room and paid him a visit. It was you know, quite you know, uh, noteworthy in these days. But prior to her arrival, the Marines were told to expect a VIP. It's going to be a visiting dignitary, so everybody better look sharp. So Scuttlebutt had it that it was Rita Hayworth. Uh, a Hollywood pinup that it wasn't going to be. You know, no one even thought it could possibly be Eleanor Roosevelt. So all of these 18, 90-year-old boys were getting geezed up at the thought that Rita Hayworth was going to be landing on New Zealand. So when the plane landed and all of the Marines were gathered around, you know, probably frothing a little bit at Rita Hayworth walking down, uh, it was Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> and they were so disappointed that they greeted her with boos and catcalls and raspberries, um, which prompted her to, to say that famous quote and also offer that the Marines were such wild barbarians that they should be put in quarantine for one year before they're allowed back in the, into the United States. <laughs> And, uh, and when I told Marvin Strombo, you know, that, that last bit about quarantine, he said she was probably right. It's a good story. It was, very, it was very sad reading near the end of the book when you described the psychological problems that the guys who did survive had to suffer when they got back to the States after the war. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Well, the, that was probably one of the most... Uh, I don't say double-edged swords of talking to these old guys because they all have, have nightmares and they continue to have nightmares, even as 90 year old men of the horrors that they live through. And they are, you know, it's Mullins officer's tomb. It's um, smots chasing through the elephant grass. It's Marvin's first bonsai. Uh, 
my father would never sleep at night. Even as an old man, he would sleep for little bits throughout the day, but never through the whole night. When I'd meet some of the children of the men from the platoon, I met uh, Al Yunker Jr. And I, you know, I just mentioned, did, did your dad ever talk about his nightmares? And it's like, at that point, you just think your, your father's alone in it. He's the only one, but they all had nightmares. And he said, there wasn't a night of my life that until I left home that didn't go by when I'd wake up at night to the sounds of my father tearing the bedroom apart in his, you know, battle against the Japanese. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, uh, you know, in talking to, in Georgia, Bob Smots, who married his, you know, high school sweetheart, Alma Jean, and they met at an Alice Chalmers tractor show, which I think is pretty sweet, when they were 14. Uh, so they know they knew each other before the war, and after talking to him for a bit, she said, took me aside and said, this is really good for Bob to talk. And then she told me as uh, a bride how she would wake up at night and Bob would be choking her mm -hmm. because he'd be having his dream. He'd caught a Japanese, and it, eventually um, she learned the early warning signs of his nightmare coming on, and he could wake um wake him up before it began but uh you know dad said at one point it's it's funny that uh all your life you dream you know when you're overseas you dream about dream about going home but then once you get home you're afraid to sleep and afraid to dream can you add some stories that maybe didn't make the book there there's one that is besides betty hutton who was very dear to the Marines because she performed. The Marines never got a USO show. Bob Hope would never because the Marines were always on the front line. And uh, they revered Betty Hutton because she visited Saipan in November of 1944, I think, and put on a show. Wow. And that was when the it was still pretty the, much the Wild West out there. They, in fact, the Marines gave her the rank of colonel, thinking that if she were captured, that she was an officer might buy her a little bit more leniency. Yeah. Imagine going that you're a Hollywood star and it means that much to you to go and perform for these boys. And they were so starved for entertainment that was and the 40 Thieves um, sort of escorted her in from the airport to the to the little um, amphitheater that they built. And at the time Japanese still active on the island would sneak in and watch, sit in the back row and watch the shows with them <laughs> because they'd be at night, so you couldn't tell. Uh, so that was very common that they would do that. But besides Betty Hutton, the other uh, episode was about this major from Minnesota that everybody of the 40 Thieves hated. My dad would write letters home about how he despised the man, but he had to get along with him because he was a major... Uh, Roscoe Mullins hated him so much that he went to the uh, regimental headquarters and put an album on, um, uh, and the song was entitled Too Old to Dream, and dedicated it to the major. <laughs> and the major got so uh, angry over it that he went to the tent and broke that record into bits. <laughs> <laughs> but the uh, best thing was from uh, Hobart Tipton 
who uh, he and Smots were standing guard over some medical facility because the Japanese would come in and steal the rabbits at night to for food that they'd be using, you know, the animals for tests and things. And every night, this major from Minnesota, he had acquired a nurse as a, a girlfriend. And every night he'd go and get the nurse and take her into the coconut grove for um, a little liaison. And one night Tipton got it into his head to load his M1 with tracers. And right when the major had the woman in a compromising position, Tipton started to strafe the top of the coconut trees with these red tracers <laughs> just for fun. And the major gets all livid about it. The woman is obviously shaken beyond end. And he comes over and starts threatening court martial and everything. And my dad hears the commotion and comes over. And Tipton was very calm because he probably knew what the, that major was going to say. And he kept on saying, you know, I saw a Jap. I saw a Jap. There was a Japanese soldier in the tree. I saw a Jap. And my dad came over and said to the major, Tipton's been with me through this whole campaign. If he saw an enemy soldier in that tree, there was an enemy soldier in that tree. <laughs> and, and then the major just walked away in a huff. But um, that was, uh, as Smot said, that was just Tipton being Tipton. Well, you can be very, very proud of your father for what he did. And he was a good commander. He never sent anybody on a mission or asked them to do anything that he wouldn't do himself. And he bailed them out of situations ever since that first training in Hawaii when he had, when he had brought them all together and they ended up getting into trouble. And I believe he had, he had noticed something going on in a small town where those guys had been. Could you, do you remember any of that story? Or could you share a little bit of that story? Sure. Uh, Part of their uh, training was living off the land, being able to survive behind enemy lines for X amount of days. So he sent them up into the Koala Mountains uh, to, to train for a week, live off the land, maybe practice their new unertal scopes that they put on Springfields that made them accurate almost up to 1,000 yards, I believe. Um, whereas with normal iron sights, they could hit anywhere from 500 to maybe 700 yards. But I might be wrong there. Um, while they were up there, they met this Chinese gentleman who lived um, along the ocean. And there were three fingerlit canyons cut into one side near the YPO Valley. And he showed them a conduit through the mountains that uh, where water, an aqueduct, I guess, or viaduct, um, um, that carried water that took sugarcane from one side to the other. So they waded through that and came through on the other side in the Waipio Valley. And the Chinese man told them that there were Japanese submarines that would dock in the two other fingerlit canyons uh, periodically and be resupplied from the village of Polalu, which was just to the north of the three fingerlit canyons. And... Uh, Polalu had been declared off-limits by the FBI because the whole village was filled with Japanese sympathizers and Japanese loyalists, so much so that they took all of the men to internment camps, leaving just women and children there. Uh, what some people don't know is that 
obviously Hawaii was not a state at the time, it was a territory, and there were quite a lot of Japanese on the island. Uh, and the Battle of Midway had the Japanese won there the trap that they were luring the remnants of the Navy into. If they would have taken Midway, they pretty much could have walked into Hawaii unopposed and the majority of the population would have accepted them and were anticipating uh, Japanese um, occupancy. So anyhow, there's this village of just women and children and the 10 or 20, 18, 19 year old boys decide they're gonna go into that village. And the old woman who ran the general store there was a spy. She was sort of the head spy. She had a radio that she sent uh, messages to the Japanese submarines offshore. And the FBI had set up a triangulation station around Polalu to try to trap her with the radio when she'd send them off, but she was cagey. They could never find it. So she immediately rounded up a bunch of teenage girls to uh, entertain the boys in her little shop. And they had a little bit of money and there was beer and there was ice cream and they, and there were girls, you know, they hadn't seen a girl since God knows when. And um, all of this is a story from Bob Smots. Okay. So I'm thinking at one point that this was all, you know, this could be just not made up, but uh, embellished somewhat. And then, uh, I get a message from Richard Zuziak, who found me wishing his father a happy birthday, John Zuziak on the website, because John Zuziak was one of the 40 thieves. And he asked me if I wanted his dad's war pictures. I, yeah, sure, why not? I thought they'd be you know, just standard stuff that's USMC issued, like they did on Guadalcanal and Tarawa stock stuff. But no, he had his own camera. And he uh -huh. took it into Polulu. <laughs> and this was after the first draft had been sent off to uh, the publisher that I get this information of the guys with the girls <laughs> in Polulu. <laughs> and they're, they have their, their photos taken with the, the head spy whom they're calling Mom. And, and it, was it, was, it was just... The most wondrous acquisition were these Zuziak photos that that le legitimized what um, Smots was telling, down to the point of being uh, found out by the head of the Hawaiian Home Guard, which I believe was maybe General Emmons or Richardson, I forget which one it was, and they invited him to their house for, for lunch. And there's a picture of them sitting around his kitchen table having lunch. <laughs> So, so that lasted about a week, and then they got busted for it, and General Holland Mad Smith found out about it, and he was going to really, you know, these were his elite team that was going to spearhead the invasion into Saipan, and Dad was able to take what uh, information he'd learned from the guys to buy them some bit of leniency, and the leniency was patrolling officers' tents which is like putting the fox in charge of the hen house because the officers had the good booze yeah. and to have all of these thieves patrolling around all day in the heat, knowing that there's, you know, a bunch of good four roses or teachers behind somebody's, underneath somebody's bunk. Uh, a couple of them got busted for that. Rough punishment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thank you very much for sharing your stories. And thank you so much for this book, 40 Thieves on Saipan. Absolutely wonderfully written. Thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for all the research and time you've put into it. It's just a fantastic read. I'm happy that it's coming out in time for Father's Day. Um, not just for not just for the men who survived World War II, but for for any yep. any man or woman that serves in our armed forces today. Their experience is no different than what those those guys went through back in World War II. Um, when you're out there in the field and it's you were them, it's one gruesome business that we need to get down on our knees and thank every you know, young man and young woman who want to serve this country. Well said. What were some of the difficulties you faced writing this book? Well, with so many stories from all of the men, and uh, I first compiled it as an oral history, but I was told from uh, an early um, publisher that oral histories, nobody's interested in them. And I was lucky enough to have a friend who was a bona fide author, Cynthia Crock, that I solicited to um, to help me put it in a, a narrative form and make it what it is today. And if it weren't for her, I think I would have been, you know, strike three at the plate with uh, with continuing in my meager efforts. Um, but one of the big things with uh, Cynthia agreeing is that we wanted to make sure that a significant part of the royalties from the book. Uh, that we donate them to organizations that help veterans. Um, Because my dad always said that we don't do enough for our veterans. And uh, I'd be a sad excuse of a son if I didn't honor that sentiment. And luckily, Cynthia agreed to that. So um, she was a wonderful experience working with her and getting it in this format. Well, the two of you did a wonderful job on the book. It is really a page turner. Thank you so much. For all, all that right. you've done here, it's it's a tremendous piece of history. But anyhow, thank you so much, John, for having me on. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. Great talking to you, and I wish you the best of luck going forward. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it.